Hello there, welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show all about Marvel Comics Man Without Fear, lawyer by day and superhero by night, Daredevil, brought to you by Two True Freaks. I am J. David Weeder, but you could call me Dave, and this is my official announcement of the return of the one true Daredevil show to the airwaves, or if you want to get pedantic, RSS feed, after a very odd period. For those that came in late, last September I decided to change the format and name of the show and cover things like Star Trek and Back to the Future, and the reason is I had been frustrated for a great long time, the grass looked greener on the other side of the fence. So come to find out, the other side of the fence didn't quite feel right. Now those episodes came out fine, I'm glad I did them, I'm not saying the show was bad, I'm just saying it never felt right. It didn't feel like home. I'm glad I tried it, I'm glad I got it out of my system, but it was time to stop messing around and do the show that has always felt the most natural to me, which is Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And apparently you, the listeners, wanted this too. The general topic episodes got the lukewarm downloads and feedback until episode 89, which is the lost episode. I put that out there because I had it found on my hard drive. It got huge numbers and it got a lot of social media movement. The feedback that I got in general during that time was general podcasts were a dime a dozen, but there aren't any Daredevil podcasts covering the comics. And while I didn't like it at the time, that feedback has proven to be true. And bear with me because my voice is a little hoarse. I've been suffering from a cold. But I've been thinking about an Ernest Hemingway quote from his book, A Movable Feast, which was a book about his time in Paris and particularly about his first marriage. There's a scene towards the end where he sees his wife for the first time after falling in love with another woman. And Hemingway wrote, I wished I had died before I loved anyone but her. And that's how I feel about Dave's Daredevil podcast. So the show is coming back July 2nd with regular episodes. It's coming back to stay up through episode 100 and beyond. And for those that like the Back to the Future, Star Trek stuff from Dave Does Podcasts, I do have ideas on where those could perhaps be explored down the road. But they're simply ideas at this time. And as for what to expect, I want to put it on Front Street now. There will be... One minor change to the show. The bulk of the show will be what you've known. Daredevil comics all the time, but I want to include characters that are Daredevil adjacent. So I've made allies and enemies eligible for coverage on the show. Now, I've kept the ally list fairly short, otherwise it would get ridiculous. We have Spider-Man, Power Man, and Iron Fist, Punisher, Black Widow, Elektra, and the Cloak and Dagger combo. Keeping it fairly within the realm, because I don't want to stretch too far from Daredevil in that street-level brand of heroism. And let's not forget enemies. Bullseye, Kingpin, the Owl, they fought other heroes. Kingpin even had his origins in Spider-Man's rogues gallery, so those stories are up for contention as well once the show starts resuming. The goal is to make a broader pool to take coverage from, and sometimes an occasional palate cleanser, something different. I have enough material to keep myself and you engaged and happy for the next several years. And as far as what to expect when the show comes back, I've decided I'm not going to be diving into any long reading projects right out of the gate. The first nine episodes of Dave's Daredevil podcast were all standalone, one-off episodes. They were great, but they were building towards a longer coverage uh, towards the Frank Miller material that would have started the following year. And that kind of ended up petering out. You're stuck within a certain loop, so I don't want to do that to the show. So for the first few months or so, I'm only going to be covering one-off stories or two-part stories, things like that. No eight- or twelve-part epics. Just some great Daredevil comics, or as Trentus Magnus of Trentus Magnus. Punches Reality, also available at TwoTrueFreaks.com, calls it the Spinner Rack style of coverage. So have a Daredevil comic or a comic featuring a Daredevil adjacent character every week, and I will break down the synopsis, talk about the story, talk about the art, and then render a final verdict. Pretty much the same format as before. If it isn't broke, don't try to fix it. And that is basically Dave's Daredevil podcast in a nutshell. The same show you remember coming back July 2nd, comics coverage revolving around Daredevil and related characters each and every Sunday. However, what I want to do is give you a little bit of a gift. One of the final lost episodes that was actually being edited 
as I decided to do Dave Does Podcasts. So I've gone back and re-edited it and finished it out, just as you would expect it. And it will be a little bit dated. It was slated to come out July of 2016, so you'll hear some odd references. I did go ahead and decide to keep those in and keep it as it was originally intended. So without further ado, here is Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 90, and I will see you in July. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a Two True Freaks presentation, the show all about Marvel Comics' Man Without Fear, hosted by me, J. David Weeder. But, as usual, you can call me Dave. Or if you're not into the whole brevity thing, the Conway Twitty of podcasting, however you want to play it. As usual, I'll be covering an issue of Daredevil this week, currently still in the Bronze Age. Just playing around in that arena for a moment. But, you know, looking ahead to the future, I was really dismayed to hear that CW is ending its contract with Hulu because that's how I watch my DC Comics shows. I know, I know, it's probably in bad taste to talk about watching DC Comics shows while hosting a Marvel podcast, but bear with me here, it does come full circle. See, I really, really like The Flash from CW. I think that's a wonderful show, love the cast, and it's an unabashed superhero TV show. I love Arrow, although I think it's gotten weaker in the last two seasons versus the first two seasons of the show, and I really like Supergirl. Legends of Tomorrow I kind of gave up on, but they kind of hooked me with the twist at the end of the first season. So naturally, the new seasons excited me. However, I apparently will not be watching them day after as I have been. Instead, I'll probably have to binge watch them on Netflix a little bit after the season's end, which is going to cause some social media nightmares, but first world problems, right? So the main thing I have to contend with now is a big lurch in my programming. I'm used to watching these shows weekly, keeping up on them, and I won't be able to do that. So what's my alternative? Why not rewatch Netflix's Daredevil? See, with the first two seasons, there are about 26 episodes, of course, which is about the normal range of a network TV show, such as The Flash or Supergirl. And upon viewing the both original seasons, this was a big binge watch, so a lot of things may blur, it may run together. I'm actually really, really curious to see how this plays out in a week show, as in if it were presented on a network or on cable as a weekly format rather than all episodes all at once. And suddenly I got a little spring back in my step. This is an exciting endeavor to watch this show as it was, not necessarily as it was intended, but as would be the traditional channel. And let's add to the mix that Luke Cage is coming to Netflix this year and Doctor Strange is coming to theaters in November. I've pretty much got a nice set of movies and such coming my way. So I guess that pretty much wraps up my DC TV viewing and it just means this fall and winter make mine Marvel. But enough with those random thoughts. Before we dive into this week's episode, let's check the email inbox 
inbox where we have an email from Mr. Brad Dade with a subject line that simply says, Refreshing. And Brad writes, Hi Dave, episode 87 was a nice return to what originally drew me to DDP. I like the random review of a back issue and your overall thoughts rather than the series of episodes that are involved in a theme or going over a larger storyline over several episodes. Don't get me wrong, you always do an amazing job. I just like the focus on random issues like we had at the start of DDP. And as fun as looking at an issue from the Silver or Bronze Age is, I can't wait for you to look at the odd issue from the 80s and 90s. Looking forward to what I assume will be a spectacular chrome-covered episode 100. Cheers, Brad Dade. And you know, that word refreshing, Brad, that is exactly right. It did feel refreshing. The last few episodes have felt refreshing. It's nice to have things back on a normal track again. And this week kind of follows suit. I had a lot of fun doing this week's issues notes. And as frustrating and heartbreaking as it was when the Guardian Devil files got ruined on the thumb drive, I kind of feel like it's become a blessing because suddenly everything was free again. I wasn't tied down to eight or nine episodes. So week to week I could change what was happening. And that kind of freedom is just sort of ideal for a creative environment. And you know, as many Bronze Age issues as I do want to cover and will cover, I kind of like your idea of the 80s and 90s as we're leading up to that chromium covered episode 100 that you mentioned. So between here and episode 100, we're going to have quite a few episodes devoted to 80s and 90s issues before kind of coming back to the Bronze Age after episode 100. But thank you, Brad. I think that word refreshing is exactly how I feel, especially after the break and kind of getting my head back together as far as how to make this show and getting it integrated in my schedule. Right now, I feel refreshed. So thank you for that email. And as refreshed as I feel, I really want to channel that into the issue we're looking at this week, which kind of parallels our current climate in a heated election year. We have a tale from the 70s that oddly reflects that with questions of liberty, of justice, of the procedure of law. So that's what we're going to dive into in just a few moments right after this podcast promo break. And I will be right back. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. All right, we are back. And to kind of set up this week's issue, we look at the issue prior to it. And while I don't think it's fair to call this a two-parter because this one fairly well stands alone, the previous issue does really serve as setup, and that's about it. So in the previous issue, we started in California where actor Buck Ralston gave a lot of speeches regarding how communism is plaguing America and how it's kind of rotting from the inside. And an interesting bit of kismet, Karen Page is attending one of his 
rallies, which is her only connection to these stories. But it also serves to be a connection between what's happening in California and what's coming to Matt this week. Now, with Ralston, it turns out that he masquerades as the Tribune, a legal-themed villain who wields a judge's gavel that fires this beam that renders people into a living death. What exactly that means is not clearly defined, but it sounds pretty bad. Meanwhile, in New York, Vice President Spiro Agnew, who is expertly drawn into the issue, arrives in town amid protesters, of course, of the Vietnam War, since this is the 1970s, the very, very early 70s, and there is a bombing at the hotel where the vice president is. Now, Daredevil fights the actual bombers, but they get away. He fails. He's incapacitated by one other bomb blast that really messes with his senses, and while he's incapacitated by the blast, three youths, dubbed the New York Three, or should we call them Utes, are fingered for the crime, arrested, and that kind of creates the setup for this week's issue. The New York Three are about to go on trial for a crime they didn't commit. Buck Ralston is also the Tribune in California, but his commute may be bringing him into Matt Murdock's realm. And of course, Matt Murdock is still working for Foggy, who is the DA. Therefore, Matt Murdock and Foggy are prosecuting the New York Three. And that's pretty much where we begin with Daredevil number 71, the December 1970 issue. This features a cover by Marie Severin with Sid Shores. And here we have Daredevil fighting some rough types that are actually dressed like the Flash villain, the trickster in the foreground. Behind him, some of those young boys that we mentioned in the setup here, they watch in shock. Looming over all of this, shaking his judge's gavel in one hand and a huge law book in the other, is the issue's villain, the legal theme Tribune, which we're going to get into more as we go into the issue. Now, as far as Tribune, he is looking very large and in charge, especially with the strong coloring of the cover. Daredevil looks a little stiff, but I think that's more kind of a result of the composition than the actual figure work, if you look closely. They're trying to fit a lot into this cover, and they luckily just come short of overcramming it. So it could have gone very, very badly if a few more elements were put in, but luckily we're right on the precipice of good taste in terms of catching the eye. And I gotta admit, I mean, the henchmen really do look like the trickster, and they do so in the issue itself. I was kind of torn because I wanted to say, hey, that's a swipe file, but, you know, I like the trickster, I like the Flash, so I'll let it slide. And, you know, I gotta say, this issue actually reminds me a lot of the cover to the original Incredible Hulk number one in its layout. Now, what it lacks from that cover is that sort of explosive quality. Of course, there's no bomb in the cover, ironically, but it really kind of makes up for that in pure heat. As I mentioned, the colors are strong. They're very, very hot colors. Reds, oranges, and yellows. It's it's kind of like lava on the page. It's a very sharp, eye-catching cover, primarily bolstered by those very, very strong colors. It's a real uptick in terms of the covers we've been having with Marie Severin. Now, if we open this cover, the story inside is entitled, If an Eye Offend Thee, written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Sid Shores, and lettered by Artie Simic, the same team we've had for the last couple of episodes. Likewise, this is reprinted in Essential Daredevil Volume 3, it's also available for sale on Marvel Digital and for streaming, for lack of a better term, on Marvel Unlimited. Diving into my overly long synopsis, we find Daredevil crouching on a rooftop overlooking a quiet night in New York, but the man without fear knows the truth. It's a time bomb waiting to go off. Daredevil thinks back to the events of the previous issue, catching the reader up, and when he's brought back to the here and now, he hears the sounds of two men fighting on the street below him. So he swoops down to play Peacemaker, but he's going into a trap. When he reaches the sidewalk, the two men spring their weapon on him and slap Daredevil with a summons to appear in court to testify for the defense. That leaves only one problem, because Matt Murdock is on the DA's legal team and he can't be in two places at once. Luckily, he has a backup plan in Foggy, but to complicate matters even more, Foggy phones Matt to tell him that he's sick. This means Matt is flying solo in the courtroom 
and has no way to appear as Daredevil at the same time. Thinking fast, Matt phones up a contact at the Daily Bugle and has them publish an appeal for any witnesses to the bombing to come forward. The ploy ends up being a waste of time and ink and Matt must feign sickness himself in order for Daredevil to take the stand and defend the innocent boys. Around the same time, A-list actor Buck Ralston arrives in New York with all of his tough guy swagger and joins several others in his entourage to employ his plan of extreme justice. Armed with his entourage of sycophants, Ralston's first target against the commie scum hiding in the U.S. of A, the New York Three, as if Matt Murdock needed more complications, right? The day of the trial arrives and the mood is as tense as a vice grip with protesters, news cameras, and general public just waiting at the courthouse. Matt is able to split off, sending Foggy into the courthouse so he can slip in as Daredevil later, while the Tribune replaces the judge and takes over the courtroom to place his judgment, a prearranged judgment of guilt. And Daredevil arrives just as Tribune changes the courtroom into a hostage situation. With the three boys' lives at stake in a courtroom filled with potential innocent victims, Daredevil takes the stand and his senses pick something up. Tribune has been fending off anyone who would stand against him with various gadgets and hypnotizing his henchmen with a device that Daredevil now pinpoints to Tribune's belt. In one quick move, Daredevil rips off Tribune's belt with his billy club, freeing the henchmen and leaving the villain at Daredevil's mercy. The two fight, but Tribune gets away, leaving a bomb behind. When Tribune boards a personal helicopter, Daredevil returns the bomb to its owner and blows up the helicopter in midair. And the helicopter crashes to the streets, which should mean the end of Tribune. But later on the television set in Matt and Foggy's office, Buck Ralston appears, spouting his extreme rhetoric on the tube, so somehow Tribune's alter ego is still alive. And that closes Daredevil number 71. That's not my most concise synopsis to date, but far from my worst. So, looking at the issue, getting to the notes, the fun part of the episode, the title of the issue, If an I Offend Thee, is based on the biblical book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 9. What that refers to is... Things that trip up your faith, basically, should be removed. So if an eye is part of your temptation, remove the eye. It's better to have only one eye than be tempted constantly. And that definitely falls into Buck Ralston or Tribune's point of view. So it's a very appropriate cover. And when you open the issue, you're greeted with this really cool, very simple shot of Daredevil on a ledge, crouching, just kind of hanging out and thinking. And I like that simplicity. It's not big, it's not boisterous, he's not brooding on a gargoyle or something. This is just how a regular person would think, trying to reflect, put all the facts in order. And on this page is an even better touch than the title. Basically, the text for the mouse's tale from Alice in Wonderland, which was an allegorical story. As Alice met the mouse swimming in a pool of tears, the mouse tells a story about how Fury finds him in the house and decides they're going to put the mouse on trial. But there's no judge, no jury, and the accuser is going to be all three, judge, jury, and executioner, which, of course, is very, very apparent that's exactly what Tribune is in this story. So I was very happy to see that because it's nice to draw from these parallels. And just to kind of give you an idea, the term tribune basically means somebody who upholds the law of the people or a champion of the people, which is tribune's position. It's self-appointed, but that's kind of how he sees himself as a champion of the people. So overall, from get-go, the themes of the story are already ingrained right there on the first page. And then we get a very quick recap of last issue, which again, primarily only served as a setup for this one, but to get all these gears in place to get the machine moving, I definitely see why two issues were chosen, rather than trying to cram this into one. It also helps build up the tension, because as you're going through all of that recap, you start getting a clearer idea of why New York is a time bomb, how much is happening, it's social strife. It's challenging the justice system, it's innocent people on trial. For Matt, is a very bad, bad situation, and he wants to do the right thing. 
from the point of view of the story, there's no easy solution, and the ramifications are extremely dire for these three innocent kids. Now, I mentioned last week I did a whole plot hole roundup, and there are times when any fictional representation is going to have moments where you have to swallow a hard pill, and that kind of determines your buy-in to the story. For example, here, we really do have a bit of a leap in logic where Daredevil fought the real bombers last issue. They got away. Daredevil says several weeks have passed when this trial is getting set up and ready to go. In that time, could Daredevil not have found the real bombers? Could he not have brought them to the attention? Could he have not told the police as an eyewitness, hey, these kids didn't do it, I fought the guys that did, they're still at large? Yes, of course he could have. And that's kind of where we have to make a leap in logic for this story to work. It's not a huge leap, but it's also not greatly acknowledged exactly why these simple events have not taken place and given us an easy out. Now, of course, we wouldn't have a story if they had. So in the real world, that's what we're dealing with. But in the context of the story, there's no real acknowledgement of that leap in logic. And of course, this is something where you can either dwell on it or move on. I chose to move on. Conversely, Daredevil happening upon the fight in the street below can come off very contrived, but the story itself acknowledges how odd that is. The people who slapped Daredevil with the summons say, we saw you up there, we needed to get your attention, so we mocked a fight. And of course, they do manage to get Daredevil's attention, which yields two really great panels of Daredevil starting to move into action and then a close-up of Daredevil's hand on his billy club. The attention to detail on this billy club is not only consistent from colon issue to issue, as we see close-ups here and there, but it's astounding. The detail is just astounding. You could almost believe that the billy club is a physical object with a very specific text Texture, feel, weight, etc. And if you've missed me looking at Google Maps, well, this next bit is for you. Daredevil lands by the fighting men with a Swiss center in the background, which, thanks to Google Maps, tells me this was a place at 5th Avenue and 49th Street. This is right by Rockefeller Center. I've literally walked right by this building. By the angle of Daredevil coming down, in association with that location, I can tell Daredevil was actually sitting on the roof of Saks Fifth Avenue. Which, when looking at the building in Google Maps, the ledge that we see Daredevil on is an exact match of that building. So New York is so radically, amazingly rendered in this and last issue, which featured the New York Hilton looking like it was taken from a photograph, as well as cameos by Spiro Agnew and Walter Cronkite, and Colin is on fire. And of course, the sheer irony that Daredevil actually gets lawyered is beautiful. There's a part of me that thought, shouldn't Daredevil have anticipated that summons? Maybe. But again, he's not really clear on where the defense is going. He should probably logically expect Daredevil to be asked to be part of the trial, but not exactly a definite path that the defense is going to take. However, I really like this because the tension is set up. We think something bad's about to happen, and the twist is Daredevil gets a summons. I love that. So we get a gas moment, and then we realize, nope, just being punked. Now, this issue basically sets the template for the pile stuff on Matt Murdock-style story that we see with Born Again. As Foggy gets sick, Matt's already in a bad situation, he's got a legal summons to appear now, and he can't be two places at once. So we really do have a quandary set up in the first few pages that is compelling. Quite the opposite of what we saw last week, where nothing happened until the last couple of pages. The ante keeps going up as we go further and further into the story. The best part of Colin's contribution to this issue is a living, breathing, tangible New York. For example, when Matt calls his friend Nick Dillman at the Daily Bugle, 
this person looks real. He looks unique. And as Matt puts out the call for witnesses, he has them meet him in the Washington Square area underneath the arch, a very real landmark in New York that is perfectly rendered, along with many, many different, unique, tangible faces. So you actually feel like Matt lives in New York, a place filled with many, many different types of people at any given time in the streets. And this isn't just art porn. We have a plausible reason in the plot to see all these different faces. To add the cherry on top, this is a very clear act of desperation on Matt's part. He's trying to make sure these kids don't go to jail, but he still has to work for the district attorney's office. Regardless of the nature of the case, that's his job. That's his obligation to the legal system. And he still needs to appear as Daredevil while doing the same job with the DA, which is just a bunch of impossible feats, even for the man without fear. So we've got a big Hail Mary that yields nothing. Which kind of bothered me, because I think it has a very slanted representation. The main focus of Matt's request for people to come forward is on the protesters that were present at the Hilton Hotel at the time of the bombing. As Matt describes it, anybody in New York under 25, which is profiling. And I think Thomas writes with a slant because none of these protesters that witnessed it came forward. I mean, we saw a lot of protesters and we're supposed to believe none of them saw anything or none of them are willing to come forward. Is that for lack of loyalty? Is it fear of the authority? We're not really given that side of the equation. We know the New York Three are innocent. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the rest of the protesters are just supposed to be youths that don't care. And that bothers me that we didn't get a voice of those characters in this story. In fact, the New York Three themselves are barely seen. We see them for a brief bit until they're arrested in the previous issue. And this issue, they're just in the background. They don't have any dialogue. So it does feel that there's a certain slant where we don't get both points of view in this particular matter. And it does bother me. It seems very, very biased and very blatant. Now, I'm also willing to go on record that I may be reading too much into that, that maybe the story did not present enough space for that, that the story wasn't about conflicting ideologies in the grander sense, but more of Daredevil and Buck Ralston. And let's talk a little bit more about Buck Ralston and his focus, because the first time we see him in this issue, he's piloting his own plane to New York. He's got a big cowboy hat on. He's a good old boy. The sort of old school, country style, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood type of character. And I really do think Buck Ralston was a very good antithesis to Matt. Both kind of came from the poorhouse. Buck even mentions that. And Buck's point of view is, America is the land of opportunity, where a kid can come from nothing and have his own plane, have his own Bentley, have his own mansion. And Matt also came from nothing. Matt is more humble, and both kind of feel this degree of gratitude for their circumstances because both are very fortunate in their own ways and both want to repay their environment. However, they're using very, very different currency. Where Matt is more metered, take things as they come to him, weigh them based on the evidence and information, Ralston sees any sort of dissent from the system as an affront. And his main goal is to defend the status quo by any means necessary. If somebody challenges Matt's status quo, it's a matter of let's weigh this in the legal way of examining things. Here's the evidence. Here is the potential ramifications, etc. Ralston makes knee-jerk reactions. Ralston also right out declares that the courts are... Are worthless because they do much like Matt's process weigh evidence so they do they take in the data they make decisions based on that versus that blanket overview that Ralston applies to things and what makes Ralston so appealing to me is when he puts on the Tribune's robes with all the legal themes it becomes a mockery to the very thing that Matt holds dear which is the law and the balance of the law and the process for Ralston it's sort of a anybody who disagrees with me is a target if you're not for us you're against us and it's just extreme it's 
blanket and it's complete, and that's a very scary mindset, where Matt, quote-unquote, sees things in shades of gray. Add to that that Ralston is a very public figure himself. He's an actor. His voice is already heard, and that mindset spreads like a plague. Now, he's not a perfect crack mirror representation of Matt, but this guy is also a boastful, bullying man who flies in the face of a fair trial for all, so he very much comes into a nearly perfect conflict with Matt if he had been used properly going forward after this. So with Ralston as the Tribune present, we get to move into the third act of the book, where we show up at the courthouse and it's a madhouse. The New York Three are this big, controversial trial, so everybody's eyes are on this. And in this crowd, we actually have a scene that stood out to me, and I kept going back to it. Here we have a cop asking a protester to move along. The protester says, I know my rights. The cop says, who doesn't these days? Not only does it represent kind of the environment we're in in today, in 2016, it also presents the theme that I hadn't caught prior to this scene, where we have the idea of challenging authority. And in this particular story, the people who are challenging authority are actually kind of in the right because authority is in the wrong. The New York Three were profiled. They were only taken in for being at the scene. And at the time, what they were doing was trying to help Daredevil. So we already have a bit of a failure of justice and Matt's on the wrong side already. And we're going to complicate things even more by throwing a villain into this mix. This already emotional, morally questionable, protested mix. We have what Matt calls a mockery of justice. Foggy's actually asking Matt, Foggy, the DA, I just want to point that out, is asking Matt, the assistant DA, how does it feel to be on the wrong side? And Matt mentions, just give me my 30 pieces of silver, referencing Judas Iscariot betraying Christ. Yet another Bible reference. So why is Matt going through with this? Because Matt believes in the system. He believes that even being on the wrong side, he can manage to make things right through the process. That's why the process is there. Justice has to follow the process for it to be done right. There are set parameters, there are set ways of proving innocence. And despite his conscience, he's going to go through that process to try to get the right thing done. And this is contrasted almost immediately by Tribune coming in and supplanting the judge, basically taking him out. But when Tribune comes in, he simply says, go gentle on the judge, he's simply a misguided tool of the system. Which didn't sit right with me because if you're part of the flawed system, you're a cog in a flawed system. The bigger your role, the bigger the cog you are, and a judge is a fairly relevant cog. So if the judge is a part of that system in an active way, how is he different from the accused? And the answer is really he's not. He's probably more guilty than the accused because he's allowing this crime to perpetuate. So if Tribune is there to supplant the system that he views as flawed and this person is a big part of the system, why are we going easy on him? And the real answer is because Tribune doesn't know what the f*** he's doing. He exists in a realm of blurry lines. Where does the old school US of A begin and the communist quote-unquote pinko mentality begin? And the thing is, Ralston has not set those definite parameters, which makes him, in my opinion, a little bit more dangerous because you can just piss him off and he decides you're an affront to the system and you get that gavel and the living death. We have Foggy and Matt arriving. Matt stays behind in the car. Foggy's are going into the courtroom and notices all the quote-unquote guards, which are Tribune's henchmen. This A presents the fact that Tribune's already got his claws in. This is already a danger zone. Get Kenny Loggins on the phone. It also represents a design that bothers me because the guards look like, well, they look like the T-1000, the action figure from Kenner. A little bit of village people in there. 
Like, one of these people should be stepping forward and asking Foggy if he's seen John Connor. But another thing that stood out as Foggy is entering is just the blues on the page. They're just in overload. It muddles the image because we have three tones of blue on one panel, for example. And it muddles this. You don't notice the danger, which I guess is maybe the idea, but you also don't notice the danger, which doesn't help create the tension it needs there. And so Matt has figured out how to enter the courtroom as Daredevil, and he's just allowed to stroll right into the courtroom. Bear in mind, Tribune's already taking control of the room, and Tribune should expect him as Daredevil would be on the list to testify. So you would think a superhero would be a threat. He's a flawed part of the flawed system, right? But no, because Tribune is so egotistical, he does not see Daredevil as a threat, nor does he see him exactly as an ally. He sees him as a tool that he's going to use to try to condemn these people. It seemed to me, and your mileage may vary, but it seemed to me that Daredevil should represent lawlessness and a subversion to rightful authority. For example, if there were a police state, Daredevil would be a problem for them to deal with rather than an ally. But this isn't really acknowledged, probably because of the pacing of the story at this point, as we're heading up to the what's going to be an explosion of the powder keg. To me, though, however, it is ironic that by testifying for the defense while working for the district attorney, Matt is actually subverting the system a bit. He's literally testifying against his own case, which at the very least is a conflict of interest, but no, nobody notices that. However, it's there, isn't it? And a nice little bit of a theme, the challenge to authority, his boss, his role as a public defender, and Daredevil's putting on the costume to challenge that in the name of the morally right. And I dig that a lot. There's a lot of subtlety here. Some of it may be accidental, but it's there nonetheless. I love that the cap gets blown off of this all of a sudden around the 15th page of the issue where Tribune says, we're going to have a fair trial before condemning them to death. I kind of think Ralston probably needs to review some of those law books. I know he thinks the system is worthless, but I think that was more referring to the people in the system. And of all people, to take action, Foggy, our Foggy, our boy, rushes the stand, bless his heart, and he gets knocked out courtesy of a law book. The book opens and gas comes out, which I dig. I think this character, Tribune, had a lot of potential, a lot of legs, just with those cool gimmicks. On the other side of the coin, Daredevil's showing restraint because he has concern for those around him. And the guards have not revealed themselves to be Tribune's henchmen yet. So it's a nice contrast to Tribune's callousness and his complete disregard for people's safety here. And here we find out why Tribune allows Daredevil in. It's so Daredevil can take the stand and condemn the New York Three once again. I think Ralston needs to bone up since Daredevil's testifying for the defense, so he maybe needs to learn exactly the difference between prosecution and defense, but, you know, this is a twisted court of law. This is very much Alice in Wonderland court of law. So essentially, he's the queen of hearts, off with their heads. And I'm kind of surprised I have gone this far without mentioning Tribune's look. Tribune has this blue tunic with, uh, essentially his belt looks like a chastity belt, is what it looks like. On his chest is a symbol of the scales of justice and the statue Lady Justice there, which he also has a statue of Lady Justice, he sits on the desk. He wears this high-collared cape and this full face mask that's kind of reminiscent of the uh, current Mr. Terrific or the 2000s Mr. Terrific. I mean, what it looks like is a bondage version of Liberace live in the courthouse. Just take out the candelabra, put on the scales of justice, put a ball gag in his mouth. It's a great concert time for everybody. It's family fair, people. And then suddenly everything goes bonkers after 17 pages of the situation getting progressively worse and that noose tightening and the suspense, we suddenly 
actually have action. And it's hardcore. It's a six-panel page that we see. There's a lot of gavel swinging, punch throwing, leaping, kicking. It's just mayhem and chaos. As it should be. It is fast. It is basically boom goes the dynamite is how the action flows. And then Tribune runs away and I love, love this panel of Daredevil sitting with the scales behind him. And it's Lady Justice, and he realizes that Tribune has a backup plan. That statue is a bomb, which, to me, totally lights up this issue. It seals the symbolism between Tribune and Daredevil. Essentially, Tribune's perversion of justice in that statue, by making it a bomb, becomes Tribune's own downfall. Likewise, Matt's rejection of that perversion by throwing the bomb within the statue becomes Matt's weapon. Basically, puts everything about these characters right on the page, right in front of you. It's subtle, but it makes this issue worthwhile. It makes this villain a worthwhile villain. So the action happens quickly, and then Tribune basically pulls a joker. He quote-unquote dies, and then turns up later as Ralston. The beauty of this story is Matt's unaware. He really doesn't know exactly what occurred here. And that's the thing I dug about this story in the end. Matt and Ralston are probably never going to be in the same place, so Matt's not going to pick up his heartbeat. The bad guy got away. And yet here at the end, we have the bad guy right in front of Matt. And Matt is completely blind to this perversion of justice because the evidence is no longer in place. Yet Ralston continues his same path. That's what's beautiful about this story is it does bring some of the contentiousness of the 70s into the page. It also echoes some of the things we're seeing today. We also have this build that is tense and this payoff that's actually very immense in this symbolism here in the last few pages. We're playing with themes of justice and perception of justice, more importantly. We also have those themes of extremism versus guarded optimism in both characters of Tribune and Daredevil, and kind of how those two can come into conflict. Now, yes, most of the time, if we have two different ideologies, they're going to come into an argument. Maybe it comes to fists. Most of the time, we're going to see people commenting on Facebook or Twitter. But here we have sort of an allegory playing out on the page in such a subtle way that it slipped right by the comic code, not realizing that this issue is about a challenging authority and the overbearing mindset of people who shoot first and ask questions later and condemn people before they weigh the evidence. And we have our character Daredevil fighting that ideal. And it's perfect. It's a perfect ideal for him to fight. I'm not saying this is a perfect issue, but the ideas that Roy Thomas nestles into this issue and the last issue by proxy are very powerful and they're very germane to Daredevil. In the end, what we see here is Ralston saw a problem with his country and it's one that Matt couldn't see. Not just in a literal sense, but ultimately because Matt uses blind meter justice. He's an even kill character. He's analytical, I guess would be the term. Where Ralston is looking for things wrong, looking for flaws in the system looking to exploit them to his own benefit probably so that everything moves into his perception yes it may be reading more into the issue but i don't think so I, this is all stuff that was very easily grabbed for me from the very surface of the page and it's why i actually ended up really liking this issue to move to the final verdict and look at this thing overall, let me just say, unlike last week's issue 67, this issue delivered with a build-up that did have tension, and it paid off in the end. There was quite a bit of drama leading to it. It was compelling all the way through. And I'll fully admit, like last week's issue, the action itself was primarily relegated to the last few pages. But yet we saw Matt being a lawyer. We saw him under pressure. It was basically a long pressure cooker that blew up at the very end of the issue. It was paced almost perfectly. 
quickly. As mentioned, we got to see Matt being a lawyer, and Matt was really in this tight spot, and there were innocent lives on the line. And that makes a compelling read. And when Tribune does appear, it feels earned. It feels intense. I mean, we've seen what he can do. We can see how extreme he is and how that would go against Matt, and it ends up becoming exactly what it should. Now, unfortunately, Tribune, for what a great fit he would be as a Daredevil villain, never returns again. So if I were to write Daredevil tomorrow, Tribune is the first villain I'm pulling. I'd do some refining, much like Miller did with the Kingpin, but this character is fantastic, and I cannot believe he's been forgotten. And these two issues are the only appearance of Buck Ralston in the Tribune's robes, and a nearly perfect villain for Daredevil, and nobody has touched it. And ultimately, that also means one of the better parts of the story, the sort of ambiguity, where there's no real conclusion as far as the ideologies. Both are put on trial. We see how they both conflict. Yes, we're missing the voice of the protesters, but Matt and Ralston don't really play that side of the coin. Matt wouldn't really be as extreme as the protesters, but he still opposes the way Ralston works. But in the end, the bad guy gets away. I love the way he got away. I love that the evidence was right in front of Matt. It's fitting that this crusader for justice, quote-unquote justice in extreme manner, escaped justice, somehow accidentally proving his points that the courts, that the police, couldn't pursue him, at least in his own mind. And again, it's so odd how this issue, a lot of the themes that are played with, we still see in play on social networks today. I guess ultimately what got me was that, in a sense, nothing really changes. We're always going to have conflicts. We're going to have differences of ideology. The majority of us aren't taking over a courtroom and making it a hostage uh, scenario, or nor are we putting on a devil costume and fighting for the rights of others. On a smaller scale, though, this is still a discussion and multiple discussions that are being had. And I always like when that sort of echo of yesterday reflects today. Ultimately, just to be honest, Daredevil number 71 was a really nice one-off-ish well-rounded issue. In this case, Colin and Thomas nailed it, and I think this is where they're finally finding their footing, which of course means Thomas is about to leave and hand the book off to Jerry Conway. But definitely give this issue a read and see if you saw what I saw in Daredevil number 71. As for this week, that brings us to a close next week, as promised. We jump into the 90s with a D.G. Chinchester and Ron Garney issue, looking at a slice of life for New York and Daredevil in issue 304. That is in one week from now. Until then, as always, and as always will be, justice may be blind but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. It does not draw profit for the material discussed, nor does it generate any general revenue. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright, Marvel Entertainment, all rights reserved. All opinions are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and the copyrights lie with the copyright holders. No infringement is intended. This show and the host Soul are both registered trademarks Marcia de Monzacor of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Count evil father, he loves his king. Dream of Ghost Rider when you hear his name. Hell, devil, fight for what is right.